This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a horror writer and scholar with bylines at Scream Queens, Evolution of Horror, and Rue Morgue. Next to her work as a writer, she is also the assistant editor of Ghouls Magazine. Beautiful welcomes to Rebecca McCallum. Hi, Chandler. Come into my parlor and we can have some milk and sandwiches. Ah, milk and sandwiches. The the most delightful <laughs> dinner we could possibly have, right? <laughs> it's full nourishment, full nourishment. Yeah, you get a little bit of everything there. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a delight to finally talk to you and to talk about all the things we're going to talk about today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's it's an absolute pleasure to be here and to talk about this film. I can't wait to get into it. But before we begin our discussion, I do like to kick things off with a quote about beauty that pertains to our topic. I'm not even going to mince it anymore. This is from philosophy, as it usually is. And today's quote is, Insight often demands that one face truths that one would rather were otherwise. But a painful emotion cannot be considered negative if it is the only means by which one may understand something important. Fear, for example, is negative insofar as it notices something dangerous and terrible. It is also supremely uncomfortable. But it is positive in as much as it alerts one to impending threat. I'll reveal who said that a little later and why I thought it had to do a little bit with the movie we're going to talk about today. But first, Rebecca, let's talk a bit about you and horror and what got you into all this. Where where did you start and uh, what's going on in the world of horror with you? So um, my relationship with horror is like it's I, I really see it as an evolving thing. So sort of just behind me is like a picture of The Wizard of Oz, which is like one of my favorite films. And, you know, I've been doing a bit of reflecting and thinking recently about sort of tracing back the lineage of like where my interest in horror comes from. And it's like, I think you can just often find it in the most like unusual of places. So, you know, The Wizard of Oz is full of like moments of horror. And also, you know, Shakespeare's tragedies was a big thing for me. Like growing up, I was obsessed with things like Macbeth and King Lear. And obviously those contain like moments of horror, which I find really interesting. So it's not it's not so obvious, but it's like I can see the sort of the roots of it growing. Horror is like it's something that constantly is teaching stuff about myself. Um, I've got a very sort of I write from like an analytical perspective so I like my brain's quite deconstructive so yeah so I enjoy that um but I also enjoy like the curveballs that horror can throw and I like you know the surprise and elements that it can often like can make me uncover things or think about things that I hadn't considered um and like I also love the ambiguity of horror um in terms of like me myself I started just Faculty of Horror was a big inspiration for me. Um, mm. and Yeah, huge inspiration. 
and from there I just started really just I look for I don't like purposely go out looking for things to write about I just wait till things hit me and when they hit it's just like I just get the the buzz that I have to write about this thing or I have to look at this topic and now that I've built up a body of work I find that it's often you know from a feminist perspective or something that looks at class so yeah I mean and then becoming an assistant editor at Ghouls Mag was a huge step forward for me and it's not just writing I'm now like editing and managing well co-managing with our wonderful founder-in-chief my girl Zoe Zobo with a shotgun um and we've carved out a lovely community there and you know I'm just so privileged to to be surrounded by creative people all the time yeah and what y'all are doing on ghouls magazine is it's just so nice it's it's really impressive work coming out from a lot of very talented people uh, we've already had two of them on this show already with, with danny Bethay and ren crane and uh, just i'm so happy to help spotlight it but also i'm very honored to have so many people from that particular you know, publication on here. So, you know, well done and congratulations on the position there as well. You've been running a really good ship over there. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. So did you get started with your interest in horror then? Did it all go back to, say, things like The Wizard of Oz when you were a child, like kind of spookier tales? A theory, I've only come to find that in retrospect. So it wasn't something I was consciously aware of. So, I mean, the first time I can remember encountering a proper a horror film was at a sleepover when I was like seven or eight and we watched Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors. So, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we didn't finish it because it was too scary. Um, <laughs> and then there was <laughs> there's one particular like pivotal moment for me was a Sunday afternoon. I'd just been to church because I was sort of going to church was a just thing that I did when I was little. And I came home, I taped Scream off the TV, off Channel 4. <laughs> so it, it just, just like, got to me of like <laughs> going to church and then coming home and watching Scream. Um, <laughs> uh, and I remember that really being like a hook in and me thinking, experiencing like a real thrill from it and thinking, oh, that's a thrill I've got to chase. And then it was sort of in my late teens that I started, you know, seeking all the, you know, classics out and ticking them off. Well, it sounds like we've actually had a very similar development with horror then. Uh, I was a little more aware of it as a child, but yeah, when it came to like watching horror films, indeed, it was really stuff like, hey, this is on TV. I'm going to tape it while I'm doing something like going to church. You know, it, <laughs> it's on when it's on and you had to like catch it on the VCR. <laughs> uh, it's the best way. I, I still have VHS to this day. I've got a collection and it's like, you know, thinking about you know, when we'll move house, should we downsize the VHS collection? Nah, I'd rather get rid of DVDs, to be honest, than than my VHS. (laughs) I have a thing now where if it's on DVD, I look like, is it on Blu-ray? I'll just buy it on Blu-ray. Like, Blu-ray or VHS is kind of where my head is. I can't really do DVD anymore. It just feels like such a a middle point that you're like, why would you... I I get that it's cheaper, but Blu-rays are pretty cheap these days, too, so... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta save space. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah for more videos <laughs> exactly you gotta put in the brick to get rid of the the book sized thing so 
Well, that's really great to hear. Uh, and it, it seems that you've really taken all of those like cheeky little uh, looks into horror when you were younger and just turned it into uh, a more refined and structured analytical process. So it's really nice to see how like these origins that we all have seem to manifest later in life in a more professional mindset sometimes. Uh, <laughs> and I'm happy that you share all the things that you notice from horror with everybody. Oh, thank you. It's like, yeah, like I say, it's it's an evolving thing. So, and that's part of why I love it as well, because it's changing all the time, you know, it, the world's changing all the time. So what horror reflects back to us is, is changing with that. So I think that's a great segue into what we're going to talk about, since what we're going to be talking about, as you mentioned, classics. Classic is, is the, the word to use for this particular title. So if we're going to talk about reflecting on society, we have to go back a way back for this one to 1960. Uh, Rebecca, what film are we going to be talking about? So, Chandler, I didn't make it easy on myself. I picked a biggie. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about uh, Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 Psycho. Psycho. I'm so excited to talk about this movie in this context as well. <laughs> It's one of the movies that I was shocked that we're now, I think this is episode, I'm going to say eight is what this is. And they were just now getting to Psycho. So <laughs> I'm, quite, I'm quite shocked that nobody brought it up up to this point. So excellent. Um, for those of you who have been either living under a rock or just haven't had access to classic films, because I understand that that's a thing as well. No judgment to you there. Uh, if you're not aware of what Psycho is about, I have made a spoiler-free synopsis for you. So if it's something that sounds interesting and you don't want to have spoiled, turn off the podcast and go watch the movie and then come back to us, please, because we are going to get into spoilers. But here's your spoiler-free synopsis that I wrote. It starts as follows. Marion Crane is a young secretary for a real estate agency in Phoenix, Arizona. She is caught up in a torrid affair with the brooding and handsome Sam Loomis. Sam is in the midst of a brutal divorce and down on his luck financially. If he could only pay off his debts and his alimony, he and Marion could finally be together as a couple in public. Once a filthy rich and filthy-mannered oil tycoon comes into the office to pay for an estate in $40,000 cash, Marion is struck with a devious plan. Rather than putting the money in the agency's bank deposit box for safekeeping, she hops in her car to race to her beloved Sam, cash in hand. Every step of the way, though, her conscience eats at her more and more until she eventually has to stop at a roadside motel, not just because of her mind, but because of the torrential rain. At the motel, she meets the unsettlingly charming and bashful Norman Bates, the motel manager. Things take a turn for the strange quickly as Norman's obsession with his mother becomes increasingly apparent. Marion sets in for the night. The next day, she's going to return home and reconcile the harm that she has done. Tonight, she will rest. It's just one night, after all. What harm is there in staying over for just one night? And that's all I'm going to give anybody who hasn't oh. seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> such a tease. Such a tease. <laughs> well, I mean, I like to write these as if they could be on the back of the box, you know? <laughs> uh Spoiler alert for anybody who's still listening who hasn't turned it off in time, but let's just say there's a lot of harm that can be done from staying over just one night. Um, so from this point on, you have been warned we're about to get into it. But first, I have to ask you, Rebecca, why Psycho? 
when I asked about beauty in horror? So, gosh, Psycho, to me, is a, it's one of those films where every shot, I could put it in a frame and put it on the wall. It's like every single shot. It's absolutely gorgeous. So when you said beauty, obviously my first instinct was aesthetic beauty. Mm-hmm. So like the visual beauty. Um, and then when I started sort of like when I was watching it and started peeling it back, I was like, oh, it's not just aesthetic beauty that's here. You know, there's also like beauty in death and the black and white for me is a huge part of like the reason for choosing this film. So like I've been a, a fan of Hitchcock for a long time now. And like Hitchcock himself worked as like a title card designer. That was like one of his first jobs. So he's got a great eye for aesthetics which I think really translates onto the screen and it's something that's like visible not just in Psycho but in all his works and I feel like here what he's doing is like translating all the beauty he got in the Technicolor and things like Rear Window and To Catch a Thief onto a black and white film you know he's also famous for storyboarding as well so like although he's obviously committed to like the, the polished script and things like that for, for Hitchcock it was very much like the visuals were important once he'd done the storyboarding as far as he was concerned the film was done so <laughs> like <laughs> yeah like he would famously fall asleep on set because it just bored him he was onto the next film in his mind you know everything was about the visual and this is just a it's one of the one of the you know definitely in my top five films that in terms of the films I've watched the most and I just keep coming back to it. And I saw it in different settings as well. Like we've got a sort of old, like Gothic church that's just around the corner from where we live that's got no roof on it because it was like bombed out during the war. Oh, wow. And then there was a screening of Psycho there once, like with inside the church, which was just everyone with blankets and snacks so and cool. things. Yeah, it was so good. Um, so yeah, and I just thought would be a chance to like dig in a bit deeper into some aspects of it that i hadn't considered before all right well there's plenty to dig into with this one and you've already mentioned quite a few uh aesthetic things and also i liked how you brought in a little bit more than just visual aesthetics as well because aesthetics can go into so many aspects of a work of art and film itself is already so complicated with the different means of artistry that is being put on display and hitchcock is definitely one of those directors where he's just a smorgasbord at a certain point of here, have all of your aesthetic. I've hired the right people. They've done all the work. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I I didn't know that he was so bored with the filmmaking process, but it kind of shows in his films because he's already got everybody else is just doing it. I got a good cinematographer. They're behind the camera. I already got a good uh, composer for this. So that's all taken care of. My actors, well, I hired them right the first time. So, (laughs) (laughs) And notoriously, if they didn't do what he wanted, he made sure they did. (laughs) 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 But I have to agree with you. This movie is one of the more aesthetic feasts in, in terms of film. Which is quite interesting for a film that is black and white, I would say. Because it's not a film noir, so it doesn't have a lot of the strange, hyper-stylized shadows. You know, it's not a cat people kind of a film in that sense. Um, but it's got that Hitchcock camera work to it, which seems to be impenetrable no matter what color palette you're using. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, the power of black and white is that 
cliche as it sounds, it's timeless, but I mean like timeless as well in the sense of it allows you to project onto it whatever you feel. Mm -hmm. I feel like more so than colour films, like black and white films really allow you to sort of project, you know, whatever you think onto the film. Um, You know, and I think actually in this film, Hitchcock, though he's not playing with it in shadows and stuff in the sort of, you know, the surrealist sense, it's like there is a lot here going on with the use of black and white and shadows and like duality and mirrors and things like that. Right. And, you know, like the, one of the famous like uses of like black and white in this film is, you know, when Marion, uh, before she takes the money, she's wearing the sort of white underwear and then afterwards she's wearing the black underwear, you know, it's something that's meant to like reflect their state of mind and maybe this like descent into darkness and, I was also thinking about like the shower scene. That's a scene that's associated with like cleansing and you know baptism, you know mm-hmm. ritual, and that room's like stark white as well. So, you know, I thought that played nicely into it. It really does. It, it, it's I like that observation. It's very clinical in a lot of scenes, and so when you have these stark contrasts that pop in, they really catch your eye. It's also a good budgetary thing, of course. I think that, you know, there's definitely that, that they use chocolate syrup instead of any stage blood or anything <laughs> like that. So uh, kudos to him for that. And, but what I love the most about how he set up the toilet scene, now this is a bit of a factoid area, more so than talking aesthetics, but uh, I just, I'm always tickled by the thought that people were so offended and found it so obscene to see a working toilet for the first time in, in a film. And... They even kind of poke fun at it earlier on in the movie when you have Norman showing Marion around and he's like, we got your desk over here, your bed's there, your closet's there, there's, there's over there. She's like, the bathroom? He's like, yeah, and just kind of walks away from it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, 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 I've always read that as he can't say it because potentially another myth has taken place in there. It's like, you know, he can't get it yeah. off the tongue because, yeah... Um, but yeah, no, that that's that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I think that story wise, they also chose to do that because of his emotional response to either what was going to happen there or what he uses it for, since he does peep into that bathroom. But it did, you know, knowing that Hitchcock was also aware that people were going to clutch their pearls at the thought of a toilet. <laughs> yeah. It's really him telling them, "We're going in the bathroom. Just letting you know, <laughs> yeah. we're going in there." <laughs> and that that's Hitchcock's cheeky kind of behavior and he puts yeah. those little like needle pricks in his films for censor boards and anybody he doesn't like <laughs> and it's p- present throughout the whole film um, but so okay th- where do we begin on this because there's so wow. many ways to begin yeah we could begin at the beginning I All mean right. <laughs> one of the things that I'd noticed um, well, well, one of the things I wanted to talk about, you know, if we're talking about sort of beauty and aesthetics, and it's not beauty in the sense of, you know, facial beauty or landscape beauty or anything like that, is um, Saul Bass's um, iconic title credits, and obviously Bernard Herrmann's score as well. Like, so these are like just thin, like, blocks that travel in and out as you've got that sort of frenetic string um, score over the top. And that, that made me think of, and I'd not noticed this before or thought about this before, but it really made me think of the first sort of scene that you go into is sort of under, you know, the, the blinds and through into the hotel room. And yes. it made me think that these sort of 
these slats that go across the screen are almost like blinds and that links into like you know the themes of like voyeurism that are like mm -hmm. omnipresent throughout the film so i thought that was that was interesting I loved it. Yeah, you're exactly spot on there with the blinds observation because I, I remember noticing that myself when I like I had to write about it once uh, years and years ago. But I remember pointing out the blinds too, and the way they combined that intro with the blinds as well just shows, as you were pointing out, that focus on aesthetics that Hitchcock has. You know, he wasn't going to let a movie just have inconsequential moments and scenes cut together. I could imagine him having a long conversation saying like. No, the lines have to go into <laughs> this window with blinds. No, trust me, do it. <laughs> um, and of course, there's also the theme of just the, the psyche itself snapping and breaking. So that frenetic part of you see the lines actually like snapping apart, almost like they're a crack in an egg of sorts. Yeah. And combining that with the soundtrack, that the score that's on top of it. Uh, it's funny, my partner, was I was listening to it today, and she kind of turned to me and she's like, this is so energetic and it makes me very nervous and i said yes <laughs> <laughs> exactly what hitch wants us yeah <laughs> yeah and definitely what bernard herman wanted us to feel as well it's such an iconic soundtrack as well uh, it's been copied by numerous <laughs> other you know slashers out uh, afterwards but none of them have done it quite the same of course as the original <laughs> No, and as you say, it's just a perfect introduction. And, it, you know, this is a film about looking, I think, you know. Um, yes. There's lots of, there's a, it's a, lots of motifs in there about looking, you know. Norman peeping through, to, you know, to look at Marion behind the painting. So I think, yeah, Hitch is really setting out to stall and going, look, this is, you know, this is what's going to be important. And as you say, like, definitely creating that edgier seat kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. the, the score as well. One thing that I think he's a master of as well is giving the anticipation of something startling and, uh, well, something that will rattle you up. You know, as you said, the anticipation. And yet most of his movies are rather quiet throughout most of them. And Psycho's no uh, exception to this rule. It's actually a very, very quiet movie for, I'd say, the first two-thirds of the film is just a lot of Marion looking around and trying to keep a cop off of her tail. <laughs> <laughs> but he does such a good job in those quiet moments of setting up such human stories that when we finally get to the promise of the chaos, the chaos hits us as if it's happening to us because we've invested ourselves so much into trying to figure out this protagonist in the first place. I also felt that it was very interesting that Marion was the one who actually had that theme throughout the film. That's her psychological state that we're hearing her being stressed out about what she's going to do with the money and being paranoid about everything. And so it really plays into his interpretation of the title of the story and how he mm -hmm. sees it. Cause I, I do know a lot of people who have read the book and seen the film, you know, just like when he, many adaptations, there are detractors who would say it's not a good adaptation because the adaptation is very focused on Norman and his story, but yeah. that is not at all what Hitchcock was interested in in this movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you have to get to know your victims before you can really be afraid of your antagonist as well. And I think Hitchcock understood that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
Marion's such a relatable character. She's sort of struggling a bit and, you know, she's not appreciated at work, really. You do really root for her. I wanted to touch up, touch on it maybe a bit later, this sort of scene where the policeman approaches her when her car sort of pulled over. Mm. It's like, despite the fact that she's took all this money, you're still, you still root for her to, you know, <laughs> to come through and... <laughs> Yeah, you know, you can feel how doomed the relationship is when you're introduced to her and Sam in the hotel. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I was thinking about like the beauty like, when, when I was just sort of meditating on the, you know, the idea of beauty in the film. It's like that first sort of scene between Marion and Sam. It's like it shows both the beauty of an affair and like the sort of I'm not going to say the ugliness, but the sort of you know, affairs can be passionate, but they're also, like, steeped in, like, realism and practicality. Yeah. Also interesting is that, as an affair, I would say it's one of the lower stakes affairs you could have if you have a man who's in the middle of a divorce. And it's just <laughs> yeah. because people would talk. That was all they cared about was, oh, but you haven't gotten the divorce yet. I can't be seen with you. And I'm thinking, the guy's already paying alimony. He's already being punished by the law for the fact that they're going to get a divorce. And society has made it even harder for him to just have a life outside yeah. of that. And it's even worse for Marion. I love how she did point out, like, you know, others pay too. And she's standing and getting dressed because he's kind of griping about his problems, which rightfully so. They are very irritating problems that he has to deal with. But <laughs> poor old Marion's just like, yeah, I just want a normal relationship because I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, yeah. And she's prepared to lick the stamps, so... Um, <laughs> One of the most romantic lines in film ever. <laughs> I like the stamps. <laughs> and if we think of aesthetics, this whole setup has already shown us beauty in multiple ways. So we've had the beauty of the structuring and the form. So if you look at the title sequence and the way that the cinematography will go from the image of the title sequence to the blinds and then the city... Then we also have the score, which I would say is jarring, but still undeniably beautiful in the notations that we're hearing. It's just mm -hmm. Herman was so good at taking something that would normally be pleasant to hear and just jostle it up enough to make it a little odd and off kilter. And then we have the beautiful cast. So we also do get into the use of physical beauty and, and societal concepts of beauty in, in people all kind of mishmashed together and just one little perfect package and that's just how we open the film is just look how nice this movie is which yeah. is such a great setup for what's going to come later in the film <laughs> yeah it's almost like quite quite comforting isn't it and yeah, yeah especially as time goes on like to me it feels almost like a bit nostalgic you know i wasn't around in the 60s but there's something about it that feels quite cozy mm -hmm. nostalgic is a great word for it because it actually makes me think of how a lot of modern filmmakers would try to depict the 60s they would probably make some sort of dreamy hazy kind of <laughs> yeah. filmmaking style and hitchcock was already like i love the world i live in and he just wanted to show this is the world that he sees all the time and you need to see it you know yeah and nothing surplus either it's like everything that you need to know is there you know it's lean yes exactly it's very bare bones straight to the point 
without taking away from any artistry that's in the film as well. I, I always appreciate Hitchcock's ability to, to do that. Yeah. yeah. So then we have this wonderful opening, which gives us this nice dreamy feel. I mean, they've been sleepy in the bed. We're also getting a little sleepy. I think watching them kind of like, oh, this hotel looks really comfortable. Uh, <laughs> but they have to get back to work. And it's not until Marion gets to work that we get into the real plot of the film. And I think that's when we start to unpack her character a little bit more as well. I find the most interesting filmic technique that they have in this movie is how we get into Marion's head through all of these hypothetical flashbacks that she's listening to, because you know that all of this is just fantasy and somehow I remember the first time I saw it, I was confused. Like, are they just telling me what's happening elsewhere or is she just imagining it? And the more I've watched it, the more I think, Oh no, it's her imagination. It's so that we understand her paranoia of what's going on. But um, I think the f- when was the first time we get that? I think the first time was right after she took the money. The money, yeah. yeah. I-, I think we've all played stuff like that out in our own heads, haven't we? And going, oh, if I oh, did yeah. this, you know, what's the consequence? And what would my friends say? What would my sister say? That sort of thing. <laughs> exactly. But I think they did such a good job with just using the voices of the people in this straightforward just play it's like playing a radio play basically in the middle of your movie and just having her facial expressions show how she feels about the whole thing. I love how Hitchcock does not give you a massive exposition dump to tell you what she's thinking, where she's going, what she's doing. I think today was the first time I realized that she took the money to go to Sam. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) well, I mean, $40,000, wouldn't you just take it anyway? Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe you would Chandler maybe maybe it's an American thing I don't know and I think like one thing I wanted to touch on was sort of like the in terms of like coming back to the sort of focus point of the discussion like the beauty again was it, so those sort of office scenes with um, Tom Cassidy um, you know the horror of and the attraction of therefore the beauty of money like money's potential to be yes this is not my opinion by the way but it's, it's like <laughs> your <potential>. analysis <laughs> yeah it's like you know money is associated with tom cassidy who's you know he's very he's very well off you know he's marrying his daughter off and he's gonna buy this house and there's something like i don't know if this you picked up on but for me there's something just really grotesque and sweaty and filthy and horrible about him you know like <laughs> yeah he's a nasty character it's like i could imagine him i could imagine like his spit hitting me across the desk and like oh he's just he's you know and so i tie him to like you know to the the sort of ugly destructive criminal wrong sides of money you know but for marion it's like Money is beautiful in this moment because it's a way out. Yes. Money has that kind of duality to it that it can be the most evil thing in existence. But if you need it for whatever reason, it is like a golden idol in front of you that you will worship if you need to. Granted, this is a structural thing, a systemic thing that it's been kind of imposed upon us. Yeah. But, you know... 
it's the world you live in. So if that's just the way the world is, then that's how it goes. And you can see Marion's uh, disposition seems to light up a bit when she's around the money. She's getting thoughts immediately. Yeah, and come on, let's face it, I'd rather she had the money than he did. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it would have been nice if he could you know marry his daughter off i suppose but he does talk about how like spoiled his daughter is too like she's never had a negative day she doesn't really appreciate this wedding then either (laughs) i also you know we were talking about the grotesquerie of the character that's a perfect word i'd say also philosophically for this character because he is in the state of of two different beings kind of like hybridized together in that He's just some little nice old man, but he's still that lecherous, oh, money yeah. grubby, well, woman grubby as well kind of guy. <laughs> like, I loved it in Marion's imagination later when she thought of what it would be like when he finds out about the money that she just imagines that he's like, yeah. and she flirted with me too. And when yeah. she didn't do anything, she just sat there like, okay, sir. <laughs> yeah, like she just sat there as I counted it all out or whatever. Yeah, it's so good. He talks about, doesn't he, talks about, you know, money buying off on happiness or something like that. And it's like, potentially, you know, in the short term, that's what Marion tries to do. But, if, you know, life doesn't work that way. Um, and Especially if, if it's not yours to give. It's the same with anything. Like, money only buys happiness if you've already had the money to do a gesture yourself for somebody else. Not taking somebody else's money to give it to somebody else. I don't think Sam would have appreciated it very much if we no. had gotten to that. He seems too noble. (laughs) But what I do find interesting about the way the film takes that thought about money is it shows it to you, but it shows us how we feel about money. Through Marion, we are all like 40,000 cash. Yo. And she's thinking it. Everybody else is thinking it. And then by the halfway point, and here's the spoilers for anybody who doesn't know, like by the time Marion's dead, the money is the least important part of this entire story it just takes a complete turn it's inconsequential isn't it yeah i mean doesn't norman just put it in the bottom of the lake with the car yeah yeah he doesn't care you think he could like spruce up his house or do something (laughs) with it but i love that commentary like you said it's inconsequential so like just this the uselessness of money in the long term of things because Love and human connection and understanding each other and empathy. These things are far more important than any monetary gain. Yeah, they're the things that drive you, aren't they? You know, in essence, you know, money is a material thing, like you say. You know, things like, you know, grief and repression and things like that. You know, they're the things that make us us and the things that, you know, as Norman says to Marion, you know, that keep us in traps and things like that, they're the things that sort of, at the end of the day, drive us as humans, you know, and, you know, money becomes, you know, irrelevant in Norman's case. Mm. I think that's also what the film explores the most as well. It may seem at first that it's all about money and paranoia, uh, maybe a little bit about guilt, but by the time Norman enters the scene, it really is about grief and about self-love basically and family you know we actually in a previous episode when i was talking with ren we spoke about chosen families and i think this film also shows the difference between biological and chosen families to a degree or at the very least the benefit one could have from it considering that norman's biological family ended up scarring him 
and being a truly toxic and parasitic part of his psyche. But he doesn't have a chosen family to help alleviate any of that. And therefore, he can't rely on himself because he's tainted from the abuses that he had when he was younger. Yeah, and I think that's sort of, I think that's where Hitchcock uses the setting to sort of almost draw that out. You know, you've got the sort of busy streets of the city and then you've got the Bates Motel that's just sort of in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's isolated, it's remote. There's, there's nothing, no bustle going on there. I think, you know, when Marion and um, Norman are having their conversation in the parlour, she's asking, you know, do you not have friends? Do you not socialise? It's like, yeah. he's got he's got nobody. He's got absolutely nobody. Nobody but his mother. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll, get, we'll get on his mother in just a bit. Um, this isolation is also pointed out in little details like when she's there she's a little confused as to where she even is she didn't know about that motel and he says oh yeah they moved the highway it's almost as if society has actively tried to get away from the Bates Motel and he's just (laughs) content to let them do it (laughs) yeah or push it push it away you know it's sort of yeah and it's it puts it almost on a feeling of like a border and then I think that sort of links in with sort of Norman feeling like an outsider. You know, he's been pushed to the fringes of society. Yes. I mean, the motel itself is in a literal liminal space. It's in neither city that's neighboring it. It's not a part of anything. It's just, is it even desert? I don't even know. It's not too clear <laughs> where he is because they don't really uh, focus too much on it. You either just see the motel or you see people in their cars and you don't really get to see where they're driving, which is an interesting touch in itself as well. Yeah, and I think you've got, you know, within that sort of, that setting of the base motel, you've got sort of the motel itself, which is sort of, you know, it's very, it's officious and it's like, it's a work setting and it's quite cold. And mm-hmm. and then you've got this sort of huge gothic house <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> to me, it's definitely more, you know, it's no surprise that, you know, that's where Norman keeps his mother because yeah. this is the home. It's associated with the domestic space. So I feel like there's these two, two almost like they're not two homes, but they're two sort of settings within one setting. A good mm-hmm. commentary on Norman's like duality as well. That's exactly what I was thinking when you were talking. Yeah, it's like the physical spaces that he embodies is his psychological state in like manifested so one represents his old home life and then the other represents him as an adult having to carry around all this baggage while he's working basically well but he's then, changing the sheets yeah yeah just changing the sheets exactly <laughs> but hey it, it, it's like the bates motel is what he shows the outside world it's simple it yeah. gets the job done you know he's a very shy but kind of goofy guy like he makes all those Silly little dad jokes constantly about things. Uh, very endearing, especially when, yeah. it, like, well, 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. Make a move, yeah. <laughs> He's just so happy to tell her that. Which is, I feel, the creepiest part about Norman, of course, is, is how in denial he is and how it's almost like he's constantly crying for help, but mm. nobody ever well. sees it. Yeah, except us, and we can't do anything. (laughs) No. If you're a first-time viewer of it as well, you have absolutely 
no idea. I mean, you have a, a little idea, but you know, not knowing what the movie's really going to be about, you have no idea that he's going to be the main source of fear and your threat throughout the entire film. It just seems like a, a person who might be under the thumb of a very uh, abusive parent <laughs> who just wants to have a friend. And then, of course, the more we go through the film, the more you realize uh, this Norman guy, he's kind of up to something. Going on. He's got a lot going on. <laughs> Maybe we should try to unpack him a little bit, because I do feel a lot of the beauty for me in this film is the complexity of Norman. Not necessarily how Norman is portrayed, and by which I mean that pretty terrible exposition dump at the end of the film. Especially the reading of that was so inconsistent that it doesn't it doesn't even hold water if you buy into the mentality of the sort of reading that they're trying to give. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is just pulling, you know, out of thin air, basically. <laughs> but Norman himself, I think there's a lot more to read in his character. So, for instance, let's, let's talk a little bit about that duality then. So, because you also mentioned, uh, I believe earlier you mentioned something about mirrors. So what was it you noticed about duality and mirrors then? Just that the use of like mirrors throughout the film seems to be, you know, an important motif. So, like, you have Marion sort of looking in the mirror before she leaves with the money, you know, as so though she's like looking at herself and confronting oh. herself. And I feel like this is sort of Hitchcock talking to like, this is us looking at who we are and confronting again that the beauty and the horror. Mm-hmm. Um, we can be like horrified at our own actions, but still undertake them, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, upon, upon meeting Norman, like Marion's position next to a mirror by the, the counter. Um, right. And we also see their reflections in the windows, you know, by the cabins and then uh, in the bedroom as well. And then there's a, a scene sort of towards the end of the film with Marion's sister, Lila, when she goes into the house and she she does that thing that we've all done sort of at least once where we see ourselves in the mirror and it, it sort of frightens us. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, especially with the use of black and white, it's like the, the mirror reflections create these nice sort of almost, it's almost in between a shadow and a real person. So I think uh, that really like adds, that. adds something nice. I do like yeah. that because then, now granted this is, not gonna, we're not going to get too much into like a psychoanalytical reading of it, but you know, if you want to go into the more Jungian idea of psychoanalysis, then the shadow self, of course, what we project onto other people, I think that's very evident and present throughout this film. And I hadn't even thought about the reflections until you were talking about it now, but you're right. Like that black and white state would indeed create it. Like there's another person on screen. Yeah. You don't get to see the different subtleties in the color of hair or anything like that so you could as a viewer even probably startle yourself forgetting that that's not another person you know <laughs> i wonder how many people in the audience kind of got caught by that <laughs> yeah like i also feel like he chooses space as well a lot um in his shots so to, to 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 look at duality so like when norman and marion are talking in the parlor it's like their first like meeting you know the to begin with they're both sort of positioned at the edges of the frame and you sort of go backwards and forwards between them and then slowly sort of norman just takes up more and more space in the frame until he fills the shot it's like you know this is when he's, he feels like he's under attack this is when marion's sort of saying you know why don't you put her in some place 
and you know the more defensive he becomes it's like he leans forwards and he takes up the shot so I think Hitch is definitely uses knows how to use space to create like dynamics he does do this a lot yeah he goes from more wide establishing shots to extreme close-ups when he really wants to kind of make you uncomfortable I've noticed is when he does it the most like most of the violence are close-ups and I know Part of that was to hide the violence, of course, because of the censorship board at the time. But there's something super uncomfortable, especially with Arbicast. That's the mm. for, for listeners. That's the private detective uh, that's uh, hired by Lila Crane, Marion's sister, to find her. He goes up the stairs, looking around inside the mansion later in the film, and Norman, as the mother, just comes up and stabs him in the face. And we only know this because, like, we see the swing, but we see the blood splop off of his face from a close-up. And it's such a shocking shot uh, because of how wide the shot was previous to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like what we've seen of Arbogast so far is that, you know, he's sort of like the hard-boiled detective type. (laughs) But actually what I think Hitch is doing here is like he's highlighting the fragility of life. You know, Mm -hmm. you can can be this like, you know, seemingly really uh, alert and, you know investigative personality but it's you know life's a fragile thing um and i think his death really emphasizes that there's so much beauty in the build-up of that as well as there is in you know the shower scene you know we get like the crack the crack and the shaft of light through the door that overhead shot which is just incredible and you know like we, we get a few beats before where we feel like like with marion it's like a few beats where she's just showering and you think she's safe and with yeah. Arbogast, it's the same, you know, you think he's okay, everything's fine, and then bang, it just sort of comes completely out of the blue. And then, you know, it's like Marion does, like he falls to the floor as well, like both of them fall, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. I think Hitchcock's got a bit of an obsession with falling. <laughs> Having recently watched, rewatched like Vertigo and Rear Window with Jimmy Stewart falls in both of those, there's something going on there. I need to, I need to look into that. <laughs> Part of me thinks he might have just been a, a, a fan of slapstick and just enjoyed people falling down. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, but you're right. I, there is a definite correlation between the way Arbogast dies and the way Marion dies, not just because they get stabbed unexpectedly, but as you pointed out, you know, they both just kind of like hold their hands up and then fall. That's just the only yeah. place and thing that they can do. Not, neither of them really fight back. Neither, neither you know, do much to protect themselves which you'd expect a private detective to be a little bit better at but <laughs> you know just one hit down the stairs and that's another thing in his case he was on a precarious position to begin with so uh, i don't think yeah. he was ever gonna make it off those steps easily anyway <laughs> um hitchcock's builds to these things are so quiet as well and what I've discussed in a lot of previous episodes, in discussions on beauty in aesthetics, a lot of your classic theorists, such as Emmanuel Kant or Edmund Burke, they would talk about beauty as a very gentle, dainty, soft, small sort of existence. Especially Burke. Burke really had troubles with it because he also was trying to formulate his concepts of the sublime which in his view was very large and masculine and terrifying. So he, I don't know if he intentionally or unintentionally made one more 
feminine and one more masculine in his uh, formulations of them. But I do see that in terms of sound, I can see how that works, especially in film because of the lack of sound that we have leading up to these massive crescendos that just completely take you by surprise. I don't care how many times I see this movie. Both of those moments just pop when they happen. Yeah, and I always sort of forget the beat that they come on as well. Like mm-hmm. like with the shower scene, I'm always like a couple of seconds before, I'm like, it's going to be now, it's going to be now. And it's always like a beat after, and yep. it still gets me. I love it. <laughs> I think it's always right after she... Yeah, I think it's right after she sees the knife. Then you get the jack, jack when she starts getting the stabs or starts getting stabbed. The stabs. What a way to say that. Oh well, yeah, you can <laughs> if you look, you can kind of pick out the sort of silhouette yeah. of, of Norman coming through the door. So it's like there's that anticipation as well. And there again is that use of the contrast that we have with the black and white to really emphasize the looming shadowy threat that's in this sterile brightly lit white environment yeah and something else that always gets me is like the gate like the walk is just it's it's like it's fast it's intentional but it's not i can't place it i don't even know how to describe it but it really sets me off balance it's just (laughs) really purposeful but it's really unnerving exactly the purpose behind the walk is what gets me as well like yeah if anybody ever walked up to me that way (laughs) <laughs> I think my hands would go up. Like, what? What do you want? <laughs> so I want to bring in the quote uh, that I mentioned earlier. And what that quote was all about, that was from a philosopher by the name of Carolyn Korsmeyer, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Buffalo in Buffalo, New York. She works a lot on aesthetics, feminism, emotion theory, and the intersectionality between all three of them. And this particular quote came from an article that she wrote called Terrible Beauties. And for her, the concept of beauty has been sort of not inappropriately looked at, but more inefficiently discussed. Because often theorists are going to talk about beauty in terms of pleasure and pain. Same things that we, you know, if we talk about fear and other negative emotions, we tend to talk about them as if they're painful. And she's noticed that beauty was always accompanied with pleasure to quote-unquote, you know, Kant's also used pleasures as well. Uh, she even points out how when Burke was talking about the sublime and trying to make the difference between beauty and sublime, how they're both like, well, they're both very strong, but one's, I mean, sublime isn't terror, so he calls it delight that we have with su- the sublime, that we're just so shocked into something that we, we're still kind of like gleefully happy that it's not actually dangerous and we can just look at it. Mm. Oh, wow, I'm happy that tornado is over there. That kind of thing. Uh, But she points out how it is a bit iffy, though, if we're getting into this pain-pleasure discussion, because that does imply that anything that is beautiful must be something that gives us immense joy. Or, as she points out as well, pain is a thing that, physiologically speaking, we can actually describe. We can tell you what causes pain. You know, the nerve endings that we have, something that causes us physical damage is registered in our brains as pain. What is a pleasure? It's hard to say without philosophy what pleasures are because, you know, we can say that maybe like a caress on your back is pleasurable, 
But in terms of physiological responses, is it any different in the pain that you experience when you get stabbed? You know, are we just talking degrees of the same spectrum on the you know neurological scale here? So she finds it weird in philosophy to talk in such a strict dichotomy of pain and pleasure because for her, there are beautiful things that are horrid that we would often say unsettle us or disturb us but are beautiful in how they are depicted. You brought up the beauty of death, for instance. She has a lot of examples in this article of you know classical paintings and stuff of people dying. Like I, One of them, I, b- I believe, is a painting from Caravaggio of the Doubting Thomas as he goes up to Jesus and sticks his fingers into Jesus' side to ex- inspect that those wounds were real. We're disgusted by it. Jesus isn't showing any pain. It's beautiful, but it's grotesque and horrible to look at at the same time. You're seeing somebody's fingers go like three knuckles deep into somebody's side, and you're like, oh, it's so unsanitary, you know? All those sorts of horrible emotions arise. I find that Psycho is a pretty suitable film for this discussion because it's such a beautifully crafted film with such a disturbing and dour story at the heart of it very tragic as well there's a lot of pain involved not just physical pain but emotional pain involved in this film but i do feel that we can still talk about it being beautiful without having to say oh but this part is beautiful but that part is beautiful but this part isn't i think the totality of this film is beautiful especially norman bates Yeah, I think, you know, with Marion's death, for example, part, half of me is like, oh, no, like, Marion's, she's gone. And the other part of me is like, oh, that's such a beautiful shot of, like, it goes from her eye and then into the plug hole. And it's like, yep. you know, things like that. So when I say, like, beauty and death, it's it's that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exactly what Korsmeyer would talk about as well. I think if she were to apply her theories to film, she would probably have mentioned something like the way this whole murder sequence was framed because even the shots of her screaming i mean as you said any shot in this movie you could take as a freeze frame and then slap it on your wall and people will go like that's a really nice painting (laughs) and her screaming and the knife in the like the foreground and her in the background is a very famous image that's been circulating all over the world all for you know decades and I don't feel that the circumstances take away from the beauty of the shot itself. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, even down to the, the sort of the the curtain sort of rips off like one by one, doesn't it? And then she oh, drops yeah. down. How she managed to stay so still? Because I've watched <laughs> it and she's she's perfectly still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they show her feet slide just a little bit, but she stays in place pretty well. Uh, I do wonder if they had her like hooked up. I actually think I, I heard about this. If I recall, I think Hitchcock himself had his arms wrapped around her waist to oh, make sure that she wouldn't fall. <laughs> okay. Make sure she wouldn't fall in inverted commas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Quote unquote, make sure she wouldn't fall. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like Hitchcock doesn't sort of, uh, you know, one of the things about that is that he, that's a very long scene. You know, he doesn't cut away after you know, it's not Marion's dead and that's it. You go into that sort of eye to the plug hole and then you get Norman arriving on the scene and, you know, all this sort of meticulous cleaning up and it's it goes on. Like, I didn't realise actually, but it really does go on, you know, that 
the sort of post-death, you know, mm-hmm. all those sort of tasks that he has to do. Which, uh, yeah. again, is Hitchcock's <laughs> strength in showing the mundane in his films. Yeah, which is still fascinating. And it still, it still looks gorgeous as well. The thing that really strikes me is how meticulous it is, too. He seems to be shocked, but then he knows exactly what he has to do. Oh, I got to do it again. <laughs> again, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the way he performs those tasks, to me, is clearly indicative that he's done it before. Oh, yeah. There's just a little <laughs> smile on his face, too, that I think that first-time viewers probably thought that he was some sort of side character that was going to be written off very quickly after she leaves the hotel. So he just seemed like some weird, creepy, incel-y kind of guy who was just, uh, <laughs> yeah, go in room number one. I'm going to watch you while you shower, and then you leave. But what strikes me about that scene, though, with that little smirk, is he's constantly talking about his mother, he dresses as his mother, but why is it then that he is so excited about her staying in room one? So the only part about the ending of the film when they go through their whole spiel as to why and how his psychological state works that I think might be onto something is the fact that he is in such denial about what he's capable of and about the harm that he can cause on people that he makes a scapegoat out of his mother. But I yeah. do wonder to what degree he truly has another personality and how much of it is him just deflecting and not accepting responsibility for his actions. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with all of that. And I was just thinking maybe maybe the excitement on Room 1 was because it has the people. Of course, of course. <laughs> maybe that it could be the only thing he was thinking about. I don't know. But... There's just a part of me also thinks like, I don't know, I think you also have used room one more often for murder. <laughs> Had to have. The way he knows how to push those cars in that lake. Although they only get the two cars, though. It's I mean, like, how many cars are in there, really? <laughs> we don't get to see them, fortunately. We only get to see them take out the two at the end of the film. It would have been nice if they had like just the bumper of one other car or something. Like, I think... An audience in 1960, I don't think they would have known what to do with that. <laughs> I like to think that they were like equally mesmerized by it as they were like mortified, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, to come back to Korsmeyer, that is exactly what she's talking about. That's it's a terrible beauty. It's a thing that you can't look away from it because of how magnetic it is. But looking at it and being involved in it gives you such discomfort that it's not the sublime the sublime would be like a tidal wave headed your way like or okay the sublime actually that's more of a threat i guess the sublime would be more like you're on the side of a tidal wave and watching it about to destroy the whole coast and you're like wow that's really horrible and i feel very bad for everybody involved but look (laughs) at the curve of the wave you you can really get invested in that or you know seeing like a lion get real close up to you at a zoo or something can give you a feeling of the sublime but what we're really talking about, or at least what Korsmeyer's hinting at here, are just those moments of unabashed beauty for whatever reason. I also love that she tries to steer away from the notion that beauty is an objective state. There are a lot of philosophers who like to say we can narrow it down to a universal agreement of what beauty is so we can talk about it more clearly. And that's really hard because I don't know what I feel yet about that because I also yeah. don't necessarily believe that it's all in the eye of the beholder either. 
I think there's a certain okay. middle point. I'm not fully because you know we have taste as well. That that could also account more for our individual tastes. But I think that we would all agree that say the cinematography and the use of black and white in this film are beautiful. For instance, mm, yeah, yeah. I say all. I'm sure there are people out there who go, "No, it's just boring." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's taste. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, were there other points then that really popped out at you about the film that you'd like to take a stab at? <laughs> stab. Oh. <laughs> um, I wanted to touch on like the horror of authority. So, oh. plainly because this film has a, sh- a shot in it that is like one of my, it's one of the scariest shots in horror for me. Right? And I can't. I'm going to regret even bringing this up because I can't actually explain why, but I can talk around it and maybe you could help, maybe you could help as well. Maybe a bit of outside perspective. So the the shot I'm talking about is where Marion's sort of pulled up on the side of the road. She's just got away with the money and there's a a policeman that stops by and she winds her window down and you just get a shot of his entire face filling the screen. Yeah. Okay, so this is the sh- this is it of all the stuff I watch. Like this is it, just, it really it really it's menacing to me. Right? There's something about the combination. I'll try and unpack it. Of you know that he's wearing shades and a hat, so there's an unknowability about his face. Okay, right. so, so there's that, and then there's a hostility to him as well. Um, the fact that he represents authority, you know, to me as well as, you know, as someone that likes to kick back against the establishment, you know, him representing authority is just, it's another, it adds another layer of terror. And then the fact that they're isolated as well, so she's there on her own, um, it really, there's just such a creeping sense of dread about his whole character, but it's that shot in particular. And then you know Hitchcock just beautifully you know he does the sort of rises and falls of, of you know their interaction because it's like it's not going to be okay and then it's okay she's off on her way and then you get to like the road forking into two and you're like is he gonna follow out isn't he and <laughs> you know you've got some score over the top and then you think oh she's safe like he hasn't he, he takes the opposite road and you think that's fine she's she got away it's great and then he sort of pops back up again at the garage that's yeah. the garage the, the car car lot and there's a shot there that really you know it puts me in mind of um in in halloween the 78 halloween when michael myers is stood watching laurie in the classroom there's mm-hmm. a shot where like yeah. the policeman is like watching and it's like it's so unnerving um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk about that. Like, you know, although that sh- that sort of particular shot, it really like it just makes my stomach go in knots. I appreciate the beauty of that. Still, it's it's a beautiful shot. The way it's framed and what Hitch is doing there is is really eloquent. What do you think about? I think. All that? <laughs> I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I was just kind of thinking about more if there was an intentional or if there was an intent to convey that. And I think it could be because 
Hitchcock was famously a fairly anti-authoritarian kind of person, so he really didn't care what people said the rules were. He was going to do things his own way. He didn't care about etiquette, anything like that. So I can imagine that police officers, especially American police officers, were not his you know favorite people. And what struck me with it, because I, I totally agree with you on how intimidating that shot is. It strikes me every single time I see it as well. What's really noticeable to me about the scene is we don't get any wider shots of the two of them looking at each other and talking. It's all either from over Marion's shoulder or from over his shoulder or from her point of view or his point of view. So whenever we see Marion, she's lower. Whenever we see him, he's looming above us. Oh, yeah. Looking down at that us. As well. yeah. And as you mentioned, the shades, we can't see his eyes. We can't see his expression. She has no idea what he's thinking. He's not saying much. So we're just all sitting here going, what is happening? (laughs) Why is he pulling me over? And I think anybody who's ever had that moment of maybe your taillight was out or you just, I don't know, just swerved real quick because you saw a spider. I don't know that if the cops pull you over, you get that. I hope that that's why they're pulling me over. You start making up all kinds of reasons and thinking about, is it because I did they find my garbage on the road? You know, something like that. You know, (laughs) are they going to find me? Has my cat escaped again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just going to be bad news or good news. I don't know what's happening. And so with him not saying much, I think it was also clear that Hitchcock wanted to point this out because most films at the time were actually instructed to make the police look positive, that they needed to look like they were helping people and smiling and carry on with your day. If they wanted to have a bad cop, they got an Irish cop. You know, that, that was the kind of stuff they did in the 60s. But he very clearly chose to have this domineering masculine figure who's looking at this woman and just saying to her, like, what are you doing? And that's about all he does. She just has to answer to him. I love that Marion has this why kind of attitude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have I done anything wrong? Have I broken any laws? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If she hadn't had the 40,000 and been really bad at poker because her poker face is terrible. <laughs> If she had been able to keep it together and stuck with that, you know, that strong womanly kind of, and what credentials do you have to ask me any of these questions? If she had just like carried him through the door, I think it would have worked and he would have just, sorry, ma'am, and left her alone. But because she was scared, he's like, ah, I get to cop. You look scared. I'm going to just keep intimidating you. Which shows that that's the reality of police enforcement for the most part not just you know i i don't want to get too much in that conversation for for whatever viewer but as you know not to say like every single cop is always trying to intimidate always as an individual as a human being but systemically they are taught to do that that is especially a patrol officer is taught to make you not even remember your rights so that they can inspect your car they can get your license plate number they can check everything even though legally they don't have the right to any of that Unless, you know, they have a warrant. So uh, the fact that he even asked her for her license was so clear a power play because she wanted to leave. Yeah. Yeah. I did find it weird that he came back later, though. I thought, Marion, this is not the place I would stop to get a new car if you're just like (laughs) five minutes down the road. You know, (laughs) clearly this is his jurisdiction. You shouldn't be here. Uh, But I, I, yeah, I think that. There is a horror to that authority, and we see it with Norman as well, that sometimes when he talks about his mother and he's protecting his mother, he gets that kind of authoritative 
It's the only time he's assertive, you know, mm-hmm. when people need to leave my mother alone. You, yeah. you need to stop talking that way, you know? So I see that commentary throughout. Arbogast, I'd say, also has it to a degree the way uh, Lila and Sam treat him shows that Arbogast is also in this weird position. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that shot's really, really impressive. <laughs> some people get it when I tell them, and some people just, like, really of everything. So I'm glad you got it. <laughs> oh, I totally got it. I, maybe you just have to have a particular view on like systemic authority <laughs> and have had your own run-ins. Uh, you know, it also, I don't know. Have you seen the movie Burnt Offerings? No, no. Okay. There's a really famous image from that where they um, have a, a ghost of a driver in this old like kind of Rolls Royce or a Bentley. I don't know what exact car it is, but he has a very similar sort of framing and look to him every time they show him that he rolls down his window and he's got these round sunglasses on leather hat but he smiles which makes it even worse he's in this big (laughs) but it's the exact same framing it's this whole i control you kind of framing. yeah i have the power yeah yeah exactly and of course if if we look at the aesthetics of it as well like i've mentioned before there is that part where everybody in the cast fits their aesthetic perfectly for the function that they need to do hitchcock is so good at looking at features and trying to see like okay but if this were a painting how would this character look and then he throws in the people there and in this case he also threw his daughter into one role but you know <laughs> that's another thing <laughs> she she plays it fine though she does oh, she, she does. she's got a good humor to it <laughs> yeah she does oh he must have seen my wedding ring that's why he didn't <laughs> Um, let's see. We've gone through quite a bit of it. Um, let's talk a little bit about what I consider the ending. Cause I don't, I consider the other part of post ending. Uh, so before the post script of the film, the reveal that Mrs. Bates has been dead this entire time. And I don't know if you would agree with me on this, but I find that entire scene, one of the most beautiful scenes ever put into a movie. From the moment that Lila walks in to turn on the light to the moment they turn the chair around, I just think is breathtaking. Yeah, she does a good scream, doesn't she? It's one of my oh. favorite screams. Oh, <laughs> such a good scream. I think that scream has been added in more sound bites than any other scream. <laughs> and the way she sort of throws the light, the light sort of goes to one side. And the way that's you, the way, yeah, that's it, isn't it? And the chair, the way it sort of slowly turns around. It's, yeah. It's not something like when I was sort of taking notes, I thought it's not a scene that I sort of I picked out specifically. I think maybe just thought, oh, maybe that'll be too obvious, but it really <laughs> is. And then you've got sort of the score on the top is, yeah. just, is doing, you know, 50% of the work as well. Um. And I don't know if you know, but when so when Norman comes in dressed as as Norma, he actually screams, "I am Norma Bates." Yeah. If you, you yeah, it's like yeah, it's like you can't hear that maybe of like on the first no. few watches, but yeah, and the way sort of you know the clothes get torn and you know, it's really this like it's 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 like a crescendo and a, a like it's an exhale, but it's like it's odd it's um, I don't want to say it's not like a triumphant moment but it's like because it's a reveal 
it feels I don't know like it's almost it sits in between being like triumphant and like devastating if that makes sense <laughs> absolutely yeah well there you go another terrible beauty you know it's it's climactic it's definitely like this is the crescendo of everything we've built up to you think that the shower scene is it <laughs> yeah then you get Arbogast. You're like, this is it. This is the big moment. <laughs> They've killed the cop. They're all hopeless. It's all going to end this way. Nope. They have that one last hurrah. And everything is framed and structured in a way that I think every device that was used in the film up until this point is implemented to its perfection at that point. Because we, it goes stark silent when she opens the door clicks the light on and then the fact that the chair doesn't even make any noise just yeah <laughs> right. and then you don't really get any noise until she screams and jostles you awake and then she's suddenly she's knocked the light aside and then it's dark and then it's light and then it's dark and everything is just kind of it's almost like the opening credits again all the different colors and shades and lights are just flashing yet again but this time with humans on the screen <laughs> Oh, that's really interesting. I haven't thought about it like that. But yeah, you're totally right. And for me, I, I also just, I'm really, harkens for me back to those old Universal monster movies as well. When I see Lila screaming and hear it, I immediately think of The Bride of Frankenstein for some reason. <laughs> She's got the same kind of scream. Yeah. <laughs> the framing yeah. is very similar as well. I, I don't know if that's, at all what you know anybody was going for but it's it's, a, but it's, same, there. it's there. yeah <laughs> aesthetically i get the similarities between yeah. the two and yeah i i just oh, this movie is it's a wonderful classic and even if you haven't seen it so anybody still listening like oh i haven't seen it but i'm gonna listen to this like we've told you the beats we've told you the, the plot is the simple it is really that simple girls in love girl finds money Girl steals money. Girl goes to hotel, changes her mind, but dies before she can do it. Everybody goes to look for her. Detective dies. They find out that the guy who killed her wasn't his mother. That's it. Like that is, you could <laughs> distill the movie as simply as that. And yet we have a very rich, vibrant, and noteworthy film that stood the test of time for so long because of all of its aesthetic qualities on top of this straight to the point premise. So do you have any final notes on uh, Psycho before we wrap things up? I think we've covered everything. And I just, I guess I look forward to, you know, in years to come, you know, seeing how my relationship with the film changes. And, you know, I'm always really interested to keep immersing myself in, in different readings of the film from different parts of the community. So... Fair. There's a lot to, to yeah. unpack this film. <laughs> uh, you know, and there's also plenty that we didn't touch upon that, you know, could have, but time and just whatever comes to fancy. For instance, there are a lot of queer readings here, and one yeah. of the biggest problematic parts of the film is that postscript where they they do the Buffalo Bill thing. They do the, well, no, 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 he's not really a transvestite because that would mean that there's a portion of society that we're actually demonizing and we're trying to get away from that. But then we're going to do it in the, the kind of weakest <laughs> attempt that we could possibly do. When it would have been way more interesting if you would have made him like a gender queered character. 
that's struggling with that and his parents abused him over it or something. I don't know. I, I'm sure the book even goes in more detail about stuff like that. Yeah. But that's uh, another topic for another day, I think. So then if we don't have any of the points on Psycho, we can wrap things up. This podcast is part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including Nightmares and Dreamscapes pod, hosted by Joe Lipset and Terry Maynard, The Scream Teens, hosted by Gory Corey and Lena, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic. And you can find my written work at ghoulish media and more, but the beautiful be sure to also keep track of the podcast on Twitter on and on Facebook at beauty horror pod. I want to thank Rebecca again for taking the time to have this discussion with me. And is there anything that you want to uh, plug for the people and where can they find you? <laughs> Thanks, Chandler. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, so you can find me on Ghouls, where we've got so much amazing content. Um, we're at www.ghoulsmagazine.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at Ghouls Magazine, where I also have a monthly column called In Her Eyes, which looks at different female characters in horror. I'm on Twitter at Pendle Pumpkin, where you can find links to all my work, including a recent new series for Hitchcock fans that I'm doing on Women in Hitchcock's Films for Moving Pictures Film Club. And you can follow them at Moving Picks Club. <laughs> and after this discussion, I have to say that that is going to be a piece that people want to check out. I mean... Uh, you've already done quite a bit of work here with Psycho Alone. I can't wait to see what else you have to say about the rest of Hitchcock's uh, oeuvre, as one of my teachers uh, liked to use that word a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, thank you so much. Uh, be sure to check out Rebecca on the interwebs. And, of course, thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that works with the horrible. Goodbye. Squad.